Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks so much for being with me here today. It is Tuesday, June the 2nd. On today's show, I'll be continuing to chat about the situation in the United States and around the world as the protests and demonstrations are continuing following what really was the the murder of George Floyd in Minnesota at the hands of police. A Minneapolis medical examiner has classified Floyd's death as a homicide, with the report saying that Floyd's heart stopped as police restrained him and compressed his neck. I mean, uh, something that wasn't hard to come to in terms of a conclusion when you saw the videos it was pretty evident of what took place so crazy stuff that is happening in the states and around the world i'm going to be joined in a little bit later here in the program by janai aragon who is assistant professor in political science at the university of victoria to talk a little bit about that situation in the states how things are moving and if we can expect any real change to come from what is happening but to begin today's show well each year The first week of June in British Columbia is declared Seniors Week. This is traditionally a time when we celebrate the contributions of those 1 million British Columbians who are over the age of 65. Joining me now on the line is BC's senior advocate, Isabel McKenzie. Isabel, how are you today? Uh, I'm well, thank you, Jeff. So uh, let's just start by talking about, you know, how Seniors Week would normally look and how it's a little bit different here this year. Obviously, as a result of COVID-19, a lot of the celebrations that would normally be had aren't going to be happening this time around. Yes, uh, normally I'm Zooming, but uh, all over the province and in different events in different uh, communities, um, oftentimes town hall meetings, ribbon cuttings, uh, lots of community organizations mobilize, um, recognizing significant volunteers who are seniors in their community. Uh, local uh, elected officials are cutting ribbons and cutting cake, and, and it's very festive and very involved and very personal during the first week of of uh, June, and it's very different this year. Um, so uh, still Zooming, but a different kind of Zoom. Uh, meeting with, uh, I met with a group of seniors by Zoom uh, yesterday, and I've got a couple of more of those coming up this week. Uh, but it's also a time for a little bit of somber reflection, actually, this year, uh, more than in other years. Uh, I do think it's important uh, to still recognize the week and, and to celebrate. So it is somber because the pandemic has cast a bit of a pall uh, over all of us, but in particular seniors where we know that the impacts of the virus are most severe and where the restrictions and the sacrifices being made to keep ourselves safe is a bigger burden for seniors than normal. But what I have found uh, is inspiring and hopeful and something to celebrate is that British Columbians and arguably Canadians uh, have come out in the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, to support seniors in their community, to stand up and to say seniors are important. Uh, We need to make sure they're treated right. Uh, We're not going to settle for what we see is happening in some parts of this country and i think that that is something to celebrate that you know you don't you don't really know what appreciate what you have sometimes until it's threatened and i think what this virus has done is it has made us 
recognize uh, and bring into sharper focus the vulnerability that many of the elders in our lives uh, face. And when the chips are down, we've stood up and we've said, um, we're here, we value seniors, and we're here to support them. Now, I think you touched on it quite a bit throughout that first response there, but just how important is it to have these types of celebrations, especially in a in a world where, you know, there is a lot of ageism that exists out there? Um, you know, probably just a, a good time to take a little bit of extra time to reflect on the seniors that are in our lives and this, the contributions they make to, to us and personally, as well as just to British Columbia as a whole. Is this just a time that, you know, maybe to put a little more focus on our, our a 65-plus community that maybe they don't normally get? I think it is, Jeff. And, you know, one of the things that I think is underappreciated is the contributions that seniors make every day. So we often reflect on the wisdom that they bring, on the, the history uh, that they hold and of their uh, contributions of the past. Um, but I think what may not be appreciated is that on ev- every day in this province, uh, seniors are continuing to contribute to their communities. So if we look at volunteering um, throughout BC, who's you know, under normal circumstances, who's running the senior centers? It's seniors. Who's one of the things I talk about is the hospital auxiliaries. Hospital auxiliaries raise ten million dollars a year every year for the healthcare system in BC, and those are seniors. You know, staffing the gift shops, having the bake sales, um, pulling together and contributing um, uh, quite a significant amount to making our healthcare system better. And then there's the tremendous and significantly underappreciated role that seniors play as family caregivers for one another. The spouses looking after each other, the adult children in their late 60s, early 70s looking after mom and dad in their mid to late 90s. Um, That is an unbelievable uh, contribution and sacrifice that seniors in this province make every day. Do you think that throughout this pandemic that there maybe has been a little bit more of an appreciation for the older people within our communities? And the reason I ask is because, you know, I'm looking at some of the volunteer numbers that you have put out just through like the the Good Neighbor program. Um, You know, a lot of support has been given to those who are in need of things like grocery shopping or even just a virtual visit. It seems like there's a lot more people who are, you know, recognizing that, uh, especially now during a pandemic where people are isolated a lot more, that there is that need to reach out. Are you seeing more of that? throughout this pandemic and I don't want to say that that's a good thing because obviously we'd much rather visit with each other in person and and along you know be be a little more personable in that in that regard but do you think there's been a little bit more of a focus on seniors throughout this than maybe there would normally be I think so I think you know there are silver linings to everything um, and we are made stronger uh, by everything that tests us and certainly this pandemic is testing us and we will come out the other side uh, stronger and better um, and I think that um, for seniors as tragic as this has been as frightening as this has been um, I think what has been inspiring is when the province said call 211 if you want to volunteer to help seniors uh, frankly the phone lines crashed uh, because the response was so overwhelming and here we are uh, I think it's about eight weeks later and over 10,000 um, British Columbians have uh, volunteered to help seniors in their community 
and by last tally it was something like 60,000 virtual visits and uh, 14,000 meals delivered and 11,000 grocery deliveries and you know the list and that's just officially there's lots there's probably multiples Mm -hmm. of that happening uh, on a day-to-day basis in communities with neighbors helping neighbors and family members helping family members and so I think it has sharpened the focus I think um, we may have underappreciated some of the vulnerabilities of our seniors and because this virus has focused to a large extent on seniors I think the response that we've seen tells us that when the chips are down um, we really really do care very deeply about the seniors in our lives and the seniors uh, within our communities. And and just to follow that up, I mean, you talk about how there is a bit of a silver lining here, even though, you know, it's obviously not ideal. And, and one of the things that has really come to the forefront as a result of all of this is the issues that exist within long-term care uh, in not only our province, but really nationwide. And we saw the reports out of Quebec and BC, or Quebec and Ontario, excuse me, and just how horrific those were. But, uh, you know, do you think that we see reports like that and we see the issues around the death rate uh, through our long-term care uh, through this pandemic? Do you think that as a result of what we're seeing in terms of the data, in terms of these reports, that there will be a significant change and a change for the better as a result of this and the way that our seniors are cared for in those long-term care homes. I know when we're talking long-term care, that's a very small minority, I believe, of the senior population in our country, but uh, definitely something that I think needs a little bit more focus. And from what I'm seeing and what I'm hoping, that there is going to be more of a focus on on you know fixing really what it, it can be a broken system. I think so, Jeff. I think that um, certainly the public has been awakened um, to issues that were really just talked about amongst um, academics and healthcare people and advocates uh, such as myself. And to the general public, uh, there may not have been awareness because the general public is not impacted directly by nursing homes or long-term care homes. And I think what has happened is as they've been awakened to their realities, they've said, uh, you know, sorry, this isn't good enough and we have to do better. And if you, if the public demands that, the public will get that. And I think that we've seen that reflected in the response of governments at all levels with a commitment to uh, make life on a day-to-day basis in care homes in BC and across Canada better. And I don't think that that commitment will, I don't think the public is going to allow that commitment uh, to fade away in a post-COVID world. Well, I, I hope you're right on that, and, and I know it's something that I, I will be continuing to follow here as we go through this, so I hope other people do as well, and then hopefully we can see some real change. Thank you so much for doing this, Isabel. I really appreciate you taking the time on uh, what is Seniors Week here in BC. Thank you, Jeff. That was BC Senior Advocate Isabel McKenzie here on Seniors Week in British Columbia. Well, it is time for a break here, but coming up next, I'll be chatting with a professor of political science at the University of Victoria to discuss the civil unrest that we're seeing in the U.S. and now around the world. So stick around, and more Jeff Andrea show will be coming up after this. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk at RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show, and thanks for joining me here on Tuesday, June the 2nd. 
Of course, we see the outrage in the United States right now. The, the death of George Floyd in Minnesota was a bit of a boiling point when it comes to racial discrimination in the United States, leading to peaceful protests as well as some not-so-peaceful not protests and ri riots. And the movement, if you wish to call it that, is spilling over now into other countries around the world, including here in Canada. How critical is this moment in history to changing the way people of color are treated, not only by police, but by everyone? And how important are our political leaders in helping to de-escalate the situation and, more importantly, provide some answer to the question of will real change be coming from this? Well, here to talk a little bit more about this with me, I'm joined on the phone by Adjunct Assistant Professor in Political Science at the University of Victoria, Dr. Janai Aragon. Janai, thanks so much for doing this. Hey Jeff, thanks for having me. Boy, do we have a lot to discuss today. Yes, that's, uh, to put it mildly, a lot to discuss. Um, first of all, I'll just kind of get your reaction to what has happened here over the past week. I mean, are you at all surprised to see how this has really taken off? Uh, you know, it started as sort of a, a, a you know, isolated uh, protest in Minnesota that's really just exploded, not only across the United States, but as I mentioned now, across the world. Are you surprised to have seen this movement really take on the legs that it has at this point? No, I'm not surprised at all. You know, everyone is already experiencing this public health crisis and has kind of um, low tolerance, low patience for things. And to have yet another unarmed African-American man um, murdered at the hands of the police, it just was gasoline on the fire of unrest. And, you know, this spring we've already seen Breonna um, Taylor uh, also um, murdered. We've had, you know, other African-American women shot on their porch or in their homes by police. In some instances, it was accidental. Um, people are fed up. And so we've definitely seen a resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, it's a very strong social movement. And we've seen the ripple effects with, you know, people protesting in Australia against um, you know, police terrorism, terrorism, not only black people, but indigenous Australians as well. So that the protests in other countries have kind of taken on a local spin, be it if it's, you know, the UBC president, Santa Ono, referring to anti-Asian discrimination, as well as discrimination against black Canadians. Yeah, and we've seen, you know, here, particularly in British Columbia over the last two, three months, the uh, racism against Asian Canadians and, and, and the situations that we're seeing now. I mean, there's, it, there's no shortage of racism here in this world that we live in. And it's really unfortunate, of course, that we have to have these conversations, but they're very important conversations to have. And I'm really happy that this movement is happening. It's been, you know, what, 100 plus years in the making. I know we've obviously seen movements throughout the course of that time period to improve the way that racial relations are in the United States, but I think more needs to be done, and clearly the people in America feel the same way, that change is needing to be happening now more than ever, and when we look at our political leaders, or not our political leaders, I guess, when we look at the political leaders in the United States, they're really not helping to de-escalate the situation at all. They're almost, you know, like you had said earlier, to use your phrase, putting a little gasoline on the fire here. Is that what you're seeing right now is that the leaders in the states are just, I mean, we can speak about the one person really who is behind it. It's really not helping. 
you know, it's really sad to see the way in which these protests have become a lightning rod for partisan politics when what we really need to discuss is systemic racism against not just African Americans, but other people of color as well, be it, you know, Asians in the United States, Latinas, Latinos, Latinx people. Um, and so it's part of this conversation as well. And, you know, particularly the U.S. with the enslavement of black people, um, this movement is 400 years in the making. It really is. I mean, just the drama and vitriol that came with the New York Times 1619 project and how some read, you know, looking back at the enslaved and moving forward, how this was racist against white people, that it wasn't. And it, it's so common to see that when you talk about a particular ethnic group, there's always someone in the crowd, be it online or, you know, over the water cooler, who's like, well, why do they get a month, you know, be it Black Pride, um, you know, that sort of thing. And these conversations are uncomfortable, but it also causes us to hopefully have conversations about power, about privilege, about different types of identity, you know, our identities, so to speak, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how, how, in terms of the timing of this, do you think that this has a real chance to make a difference? I know, like, looking back to 2014 with the death of Eric Garner and the whole I Can't Breathe campaign that really started as a result of that, of course, it applies here to George Floyd as well, but there wasn't a really, there was a good conversation, I think, that was had in 2014, but it didn't really have any actual um, change that came out of it. Do you think that there's an opportunity for change here as a result of this movement that we're in right now, and particularly as it relates to it being an election year in the States, do you think that there is some real possibility of change from this? I think that there is if people go out and vote or mail in their ballots. Um, the I Can't Breathe, there's lots of graffiti across the U.S. with people who have used that phrase. Um, I can't breathe. Uh, one of my, my, my entire family's from Southern California. And so one of my younger siblings um, sent me an image from West LA um, of a park and across the street of the park, it said, you know, the graffiti noted, rest in peace, George Floyd. But it also said, um, I can't breathe. And I've been talking to my siblings lots, um, you know, during the public health crisis. And one of the things that became evident is there's more of that phrase turning up around um, Southern California, and then there's images on social media of elsewhere. As someone who's, you know, from the States, from Southern California, does this maybe take on a bit of a different meaning for you? I mean, being in Canada, we feel a little bit, my, myself personally anyway, I feel a, a little bit removed from exactly what is happening. I've been to the States and, you know, I, I feel... Um, you know, different when I cross the border. You feel differently when you're talking about, you know, relation, uh, concerns around uh, guns and, and, and that kind of thing as well. But you just kind of have a bit of a different feeling when you go to the States, just in terms of, of how people are treated a little bit differently. Um, you know, we get it here in Canada, obviously, as well. There, we're nowhere close here in Canada just to being, you know, on equal terms, on equal footing when it comes to different mm -hmm. races and different genders and all of that. I, I get that. But it does feel different in the United States. Just does this take on any sort of a different meaning for you being someone from the U.S.? 
Oh, yes. I'm scared for my family. I'm scared for my friends. I've been checking in with colleagues um, across the U.S. who are colleagues, friends, and family who are African-American or are in um, epicenters of lots of uh, lots of social movement activity. And everyone's on edge, you know. The thing that I keep on hearing is 2020 is the worst decade ever, you know, and they're just referring to how these last barely six months feel like a decade. You know, we all seem to want a do-over. And I'm hopeful that we'll see change in November, that people will vote um, the current occupant of the White House out, and then we'll see more change moving forward. Because I don't think that we'll have enough institutional change under the current administration. You talk about mail-in voting. Do you have any fear right now that that right could somehow be taken away, given what the the president has been spewing when it comes to mail-in voting? Well, you know, intellectually, as a political scientist, I don't think that that will be affected. But you never know with this particular president. Um, it, It shouldn't be affected. You know, there's such a high concentration of... Uh, no issues, no problems with mail-in voting. And during the last four years when there's been fraud, um, I'd say about 95% of it has been committed by folks who are registered Republicans trying to stuff the ballot for their particular president Mm -hmm. or um, other issues. So voter fraud by mail is not very common. No, and I think the majority of people are are well aware of that being the case. But when you hear, you know, the president of the United States start, uh, you know, downplaying mail-in ballots, basically saying they're, you know, a a hotbed for for voter fraud and things like this, people tend to believe it. Not majorities, I don't think. The majority of people would probably disagree. But there are a lot of people out there who, you know, get their news just from Fox or just from the the president speaking when he gives his his updates to the country on, well, I don't know if you can call them updates, but when he gets, when he speaks, you know, that's pe- what people are listening to and they basically take everything he says and, and, and repeat it back, right? They're, they, they're like parrots in that regard. That happens out there. So I, I do think majority of people don't really, you know, worry too much when it comes to voter fraud, but there are people out there who have that belief and it, uh, it doesn't help when the leader of the country is, you know, feeding those concerns. Um, you Elections, of course, like you had talked about, it, it all that comes down to, to voter turnout and whether or not we can see some real change through voting. And you got to hope that that's going to happen. I guess, do you have any fear that that won't happen? Not because of uh, the lack of people wanting to vote, but I mean, as we go through a pandemic and when we see these large gatherings of mass people right now, a lot of concern on my beha- my part that we could see the COVID-19 virus spreading a lot more and a lot more quickly uh, because of these large mass gatherings that we're seeing. Um, I guess you're not a medical expert, so maybe it's not really fair to ask, but I do wonder if there is some possibility of a lack of voter turnout because of a, a second wave of COVID-19. Oh, I think that's possible, and it could be a, a third wave because, you know, we will be voting on the first Tuesday in November. Um, so we could be at the point in which there's a second or a third wave, but with the option to be able to mail in um, your ballot, hopefully it won't be um, affected by it. And, you know, Jeff, for people who aren't um, Americans and haven't voted in the U.S., 
once you fill out your ballot, you sign your signature and date that you are attesting that you are the correct person. Um, and for people like me who are considered voters um, abroad, you know, there, there's also a, a, a form that I fill out that attests that I am who I say I am. And so it's not just like you have a regular envelope and you put, you know, the president's name or Biden's name in there and there's no recourse. You're attesting with this document that you are who you say you are. Well, I think the only excuse to not voting is um, you know, there, there really isn't one unless unless you're no longer alive. I think that's the only real excuse people have to not vote. Uh, there's always opportunity. It, it's it's been um, you know made widely available for people to go about having their voice heard and being able to cast their ballot. So hopefully there is no uh, reason that people can't get to the polls and can't cast their ballots. I'm sure that will be the case, but you just never know. Just given the world we live in and people's fear right now to go out in public and uh, to have their voice heard in that regard. I, I have some concern that that could be the case, but we're, all, we're still, what, four months away from that happening, so I'll, I'll, I'll call my concerns until then. Uh, Janai, I guess just one more question for you here, because we haven't talked too much about how this relates back to Canada, um, but just, you know, as, a, as you're a political scientist professor uh, at the University of Victoria, you know, uh, here a place where we do have um, significant problems, as I mentioned earlier, when it comes to racism against Asian Canadians, and, and, you know, there's no shortage of other races, of course, that are involved in this. How, how do we learn? What, what can we learn here in Canada from what we're seeing in the United States and apply it here? Well, I think one of the things that I'm seeing on social media, be it on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, people are asking for books and resources to discuss um, whiteness, white privilege, identity. They want, you know, suggestions for uh, black Canadian authors to read, that sort of thing. So I'm seeing a lot of good allyship in terms of people wanting to do right by others. And that's invigorating, you know, to see people who say, I want to listen, I want to learn. Um, because I think this is a moment to, you know, be a good ally and to understand what's taking place and why the protesters are so angry. Because this isn't just one event, it's a pattern of um, murdering African-Americans in the U.S. Well, Janai, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate you coming on. It's been a while since we last spoke, so it was good to catch up with you again. Unfortunately, not under the best of circumstances here, but uh, really appreciate your commentary, and, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate your questions. You have a fantastic day. That was Janai Aragon, adjunct assistant professor in political science at the University of Victoria. Thanks so much for doing that, Janai. Really appreciate it. Now, I do have to take a quick break here, but uh, we'll be back with more Jeff Andrea show in just a little bit. Talk a little bit more about everything that is happening right now. Lots to break down. So stick around and the Jeff Andrea show. We'll be right back. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show. Thanks for being with me here on Tuesday, June the 2nd. And thanks again to Janai Aragon, Assistant Professor in Political Science at the University of Victoria. She joined me last segment to talk about what is happening in the United States 
And if we can expect some real change, great chat. If you missed it, you can find it podcasted online at radionl.com slash podcasts. You can also find it on other platforms like Google Podcasts and Spotify. Just search for The Jeff Andrea Show. Now, of course, a lot of people have been providing a voice to the incidents that are happening south of the border and really now around the world. We're seeing them here in Canada. We're seeing them in Vancouver. It's not uh, that far away from home anymore uh, as it started out, uh, you know, midweek last week, of course, it started out as just uh, what I believe to really be isolated incidents in the Minnesota area, but it just, it just really spread like rapid fire across the United States and then across the world. And we're seeing all the insane images that are coming out uh, of all the things that are happening in the States and across the globe. Among the people that, of course, are lending a voice to it. I mean, there's no shortage of people who are speaking out against what's happening. Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden um, was among those, of course, talking about the situation in the States. He hasn't been overly uh, in front of the camera lately, but uh, seems to be getting back out there in the recent few days. And of course, Biden's not against the movement, but he was speaking against the actions that have been taken by leaders in the country and the, also the use of force from law enforcement. It really has been anything but easy to watch. Here's a, a little bit of a clip from Joe Biden. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. George Floyd's last words, but they didn't die with him. They're still being heard, echoing all across this nation. They speak to a nation where, too often, just the color of your skin puts your life at risk. They speak to a nation where more than 100,000 people have lost their lives to the virus and 40 million have filed for unemployment, with a disproportionate number of those deaths and job losses concentrated in black and brown communities. And they speak to a nation where every day millions of people, <clears throat> millions, not at the moment of losing their life, but in the course of living their life, are saying to themselves, I can't breathe. Yeah, a lot to take in there, I, I found, and, and I thought it was a bit of a powerful message personally. And, you know, it's just a lot to, to take in these days and a lot to think about and a lot to reflect on. And I hope people are taking a chance to reflect on their own views and their own uh, personal uh, racist actions that do, you know, happen. We're all sort of inherently in that mindset a little bit. It's just hard to avoid. It's it's hard to completely eradicate from ourselves. It's just something that, you know, is, is almost unfortunately built into us and it's something we all have to take a second look at and reflect on i think prime minister justin trudeau was also asked asked about this here today asked about this week's protests and and during his daily briefing this morning he paused for a full 20 seconds before answering that canadians must be aware of the challenges facing black canadians and other minorities in our own country here and i think just the time it took him to answer the question a full 20 pause 20 second pause uh just speaks to a, a little bit of how much you know you have to think about the words and, and use them carefully but here is what uh, prime minister trudeau eventually had to say we all watch in horror and consternation what's going on in the united states it is a time uh, to pull people together, but it is a time to listen. It is a time to learn what injustices continue despite progress uh, over years and decades. But it is a time for us as Canadians to recognize that we too have our challenges. 
That was uh, Trudeau speaking to the situation in the United States and how it relates to us back here in Canada. And we're going to be getting some localized content from this as well. A group on Instagram calling itself Kamloops uh, BLM Movement is organizing a noon rally in Riverside Park this Thursday, and it will be moved to Prince Charles Park downtown if there are some flooding issues at Riverside. Um, but that's going to be on Thursday. And coming up on the show tomorrow, I'll be joined by the mayor of Kamloops, Ken Christian, where I hope to ask him a little bit about that demonstration and what will be happening here in Kamloops. I've also reached out to the organizers of that event but I've yet to hear back. So would absolutely love to have them on the program. We'll see if that indeed happens. And today is council day. So we'll be talking with Ken a little bit about council as well. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. So I want to thank all my guests for joining me. Uh, of course, Isabel McKenzie, BC Senior Advocate and Political Science Professor at UVic, Janai Aragon. Thanks so much for taking the time. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, if you join me for a short while or a long while, just know we enjoyed our time while it lasted. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday and I'll be back here tomorrow at noon.